If you're just joining us for the first time in our Advent series here, we've been working our way through the promise passages in the book of Micah. Now, Micah, whether uh, you knew this or not, I, don't, I think most of you probably know this, but if you didn't, Micah was just a country boy from kind of nowhere with an unpopular message that God himself was judging the idolatry of Israel. In chapter after chapter after chapter through this book, we see God's scathing rebuke for the oppression and the exploitation and the abuse of power that came to characterize his covenant people. And yet, amidst the, re- the rebukes, we find these promises of restoration. Yes, God is coming to judge his people, but as we've already noted for the last couple of weeks, it's not judgment just for judgment's sake, but it's judgment with a redemptive note. God will do whatever it takes to bring his people back to himself. And though pain and suffering and a degree of misery lie at the door, Micah gives his, the people of God a glimpse of the other side to see that the pain and suffering are not a sign of the absence of God. And that's an important uh, in, instruction for you and for me today as we look at the things that lie at our door, the pain and the suffering that might await us, or maybe the pain and suffering that you're already experiencing. Those are not a sign of the absence of God in your life, but rather opportunities to experience the presence of God who is doing a greater work through them. So today we come to chapter 5 of Micah. If you have a, one of the guest Bibles, we're, we're again on page 746. And what I love about this passage here is, um, is that the focus, which has been on you know, the coming promised restoration, now begins to take a little more focus on the restorer himself. So if you would turn there, Micah chapter 5, I'm only going to read a few verses beginning in verse 2 down to the first part of verse 5. But you... O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then, at last, his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of peace. On October 7th, 1916, at Grant Field in Atlanta, Georgia, a football game was played that would go down as the most lopsided game in the history of American football. The Georgia Tech engineers, coached by the legendary John Heisman, yes, the same Heisman that the the trophy ceremony last night was named after, his Georgia Tech engineers were playing the Cumberland College Bulldogs. Now, earlier that year, the two schools had faced each other on the baseball field, and the the Cumberland Bulldogs had crushed Georgia Tech to to the tune of 22 to nothing. And there were a lot of hard feelings after that game. In fact, there were even rumors of some foul play, pun intended, going on in that game that led to such a lopsided result. So, on October 7th, Georgia Tech got their revenge on the gridiron. Now, I'm just wondering, are there any trivia buffs in here who haven't already looked uh, in Google to get the answer to the question already this morning? Does anybody know, by any chance, the outcome of that football game? 
the score. What would you get? What do you think the, the high score was on the, winning, on the winning side? Just throw a guess. Someone throw a guess out here. What do you think the score was? 72. We have a 70. Do I, do I have an 82? Do I have an 80, 85? 85, 85, 99. All right, do I got a 95 back there? <laughs> I mean, we could do this for a while because I'll tell you, the score is a whole lot higher than 72. What you say, Larry Kim? Two, tw- how about 222? Two, that's what you're going to say, you liar. Don't lie in church. <laughs> I knew the answer. I just wasn't going to, you know, I didn't want to draw attention to myself. 222 to nothing. I know. <laughs> I know Pastor Aaron's fact-checking me as we speak, but it's true. 222 to nothing. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around a score like that. You know, I, I cheer for a football team that oftentimes in a, in a season, like all the major college teams, they, they get matched up, you know, usually early in the season. Unless you're in the SEC, you get sort of like a, a second bye week towards the end of the season where you get to play a, a team from, you know, a vastly outmatched team. But, you know, in the Big Ten at least, we, we front load the season with those cupcake games. And I've seen a lot of lopsided victories in my day. You know, I've seen times when the Buckeyes scored 70 points, 80 points, uh, never 100, but, you know, approaching triple digits. Um, but I've never seen anything or even heard of anything like what happened there on October 7th, 1916. Georgia Tech had 126 points in the first half. And the only reason why the score was only 222 to nothing is because they shortened, they agreed, the teams agreed to shorten the length of the third and fourth quarters from 15 minutes to 12 minutes. So imagine six more minutes at that rate of scoring. I mean, who knows? They could have probably scored 300 if they wanted to. This was a matchup of such vastly mismatched opponents that a bloodbath was inevitable. Now I want you to picture our man Micah here like one standing on the sidelines of a battlefield. And he's given a a picture in his mind, the final score, what the outcome of this battle is going to be. His people, the people of God, are Cumberland. And the enemy, the Assyrians, are Georgia Tech. Israel is so overmatched, they are so powerless at the hands of their enemies that a bloodbath is inevitable. But there's a key difference between what happened on the football field and what happened on the battlefield. Though the king of Assyria is coming and he will be ruthless and he will be as unmerciful as John Heisman was that day, the one behind him the one who is really in charge of what was going on, the one who's using the king of Assyria for his purposes is not ruthless and bloodthirsty. Yes, Assyria is the chosen instrument of God's judgment for his people's idolatry, but God's purpose is not to settle a score. God's purpose is not to get revenge. His goal, which we've already stated Two weeks now, and if you were tuned into the Bible study throughout the summer, we stated it time and time again. God's goal in, in using the, the Assyrians for, for these things that are to come is not to, bring, to get revenge, not to take out his frustration, not to settle some score because he's been hurt, his feelings are hurt, he's offended, he has to get them back and, and prove a point and make things right. No, God's purposes are to detach 
his people's hearts from their idols. That changes the equation entirely. He's not bitter and resentful. He cares about his people's life. It's not about bringing misery and death upon a people that deserve it, but to bring life and joy. God is not some petty, unfeeling, distant deity sort of out there somewhere. And I want to tell you right now, I'm sure there's at least one person here this morning, whether they intended it or not, has brought that view of God into their faith. That he's some sort of like distant irritated, sort of frustrated, beyond-me entity. And I'm just stumbling through the Christian life trying not to irritate him some more. He's not some petty, unfeeling, distant deity, oblivious at best and unconcerned about my life at worst. He sees. He knows. He understands He cares, and he himself, the promise in chapter 5, he himself is coming to them. The one who seems far off, the one who seems unconcerned is in fact closer than they think. The one who's seemingly unmoved and unconcerned actually cares a whole lot more than they could ever have imagined or dreamed. I wonder, in your life today, as you woke up this morning and you went through the, all the many barriers that seem to present themselves on Sunday morning when you're trying to get ready for church. All the moms are like, amen, Brother Sean. About God, hallelujah in here from all the mamas. I wondered this morning, as you got out of bed and you went through all the, the trouble to get yourself here on time, you drug yourself out of bed, you drug yourself through the bathroom, you drug yourself through the door, you drug yourself into here, and I wonder if at some point along the way you might have felt in your difficult life that maybe God is a little too distant for you. That maybe God isn't as concerned about your life and what you're going through and the sorrow that you feel, the pain that you experience, that he just isn't there and doesn't care. That can be how we tend to feel when things aren't going our way. Can't it? To doubt that he's near? To doubt that he cares? Yes, we know on an in, some intellectual level, you know, the, the omniscience and the omnipresence and the omnipotence of God. We believe that he, you know, God as a, as a philosophical concept, at least, he's, he's everywhere, he knows everything, he has all the power in the world, and yet we may know those things at the level of the mind, but at the level of the heart, we doubt that he cares about me. He may know my situation. He may have power over the situation, but he doesn't really care about my situation. And if you and I tend to feel that way in what are, I would say, comparatively small things to what the nation of Israel was getting ready to to face, I wonder how much they felt those things as the people of God were on the threshold of something as miserable as an invasion and an exile in their life. Yes, Micah is pronouncing judgment, and rightfully so, but all throughout the judgment, he's reminding the people of God over and over and over again exactly who God is. Even in the midst of what will be the greatest suffering and defeat of their lives. He is the one 
who knows and cares not just about the needs that they think that are on their minds and hearts, the needs of their lives. He knows and cares about the real needs of their lives. He's not so concerned about saving them from Assyria as much as he is concerned about saving them from themselves. And I want you to remember that next time you're facing a difficult situation in life or perhaps in the midst of what you're going through right now, when you feel pain, when you feel discomfort, when you are hurting in some form or fashion, when you are Cumberland and Georgia Tech is, is steamrolling your life over, I want you to remember that God sees and God knows and God understands, but God also cares. At Christmas, you and I celebrate the coming of the one promised by Micah here in our passage, and he came how? He came in the flesh. The incarnation of God at Christmas is not some sort of, you know, incidental thing. It's not some sort of, it's not something that's just sort of on the margins of the faith. It was just sort of, oh, we just acknowledge it because it's something that's in the Bible. No, the incarnation of God is central to your faith. And it tells us that God himself stepped into human history as you and me, just like you, stepped right squarely into the center of the human experience, and he steps continuously right here today in your experience. The God who seemed far off has drawn near to us. And he is not unable to sympathize, as the writer of Hebrews says, with your weakness. He's not unable to sympathize or understand from a personal, existential level what you are going through. His knowledge of your life and of your situation is not just theory. It is not just by virtue of his omniscience. It is because he stepped into your life himself. He was tested. He was tempted. He experienced everything common to man. He knows what it's like to have a broken heart. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be hurt, to be sick. Do you believe that or not? Do you, Jesus could heal others. Do you think he always healed himself whenever he had the flu? Well, maybe he didn't have the flu. I don't know. But he got, I'm sure he got sick at some point. Maybe he ate some bad lamb or something and you know, got a stomach ache. Do you think he spared himself the misery of a stomach ache just because he could? Well, we know for, for a fact that he never used his, his divinity as a benefit to himself. I think he suffered through the, the nights of, of vomiting and diarrhea just like you do. And I know that's not something that you were expecting to hear from the pulpit this morning. But it's part of human experience, isn't it? It's uncomfortable, it's gross, we don't like talking about it, but imagine God himself subjected himself to it so he could relate and experience it for you. He has been here, and he is here, even now. He doesn't promise to relieve you of your pain in the timing that you want or the manner that you want, and perhaps not even at all. And that might seem like bad news. Because I know a lot of you, I'm praying with you for the relief of your pain. I'm, paying, I'm praying for you for comfort. And I'm praying for you that God would take away the burden in your life. But he doesn't always answer that prayer like we want or when we want or at all. It might even be that those things are central to his purposes for your life. That might not sound like good news to you either. 
that the stuff that you're going through today, that you've begged God to take away, those might be the very things he wants in your life. Why? Well, because maybe he's doing something bigger than what you could ever imagine. And through it all, he promises, like we saw here in verse 5, to be your source of peace. The restorer, you see, will be sympathetic. He will come near, he will understand, he knows, and he cares. What else will the restorer be? Well, not just sympathetic, he will be unexpected. If you're the note taker, those are the first two points I want you to take. Sympathetic, unexpected. My hometown of Circleville, Ohio is situated in the beautiful scenic countryside of South Central Ohio. If you were to take Ohio, and I probably should have given the folks up in the AV booth a, a, a picture of the state of Ohio, you could, you could divide it in quarters, and if you were to, uh, the west to east line is, you know, you got I-70 that splits the state uh, east, east from west. If you were to, to take the state and divide it in the, the two halves, or even the quarters, up in the, the northwest, I guess for you, it'll be up here. Up in the northwest, you have sort of the flat sort of plains. It's, it's a lot like around here. It's just very, there's no hills, there's no mountains. You know, it's just country, countryside, farms, agriculture, you know, very rural, it's very flat. But in the southeast, you have the, the foothills of the Appalachian mountain range. And so you have this wide variety of terrain in the state of Ohio, and it's kind of divided by the I-70 corridor. And Circleville is situated just south of that dividing line, right on the threshold of where flat becomes mountain. And it's this, you know, a few years ago, uh, our, our church sent a, a group of guys up to uh, Shelbyville in, in the, Indiana to help uh, the, the church up there with their roof. And when they got back, uh, I believe it was Joe Davis, it had to be Joe Davis. Couldn't have been anybody else, now that I think about it. Gave me a hard time about how boring Ohio was. I think he even threw the word dead gum in there somewhere. I don't know. It sounds like something Joe would say. And that's because he was on I-70 driving through the state. And it is true. If you're just on the interstate going, you know, heading west, it seems very boring. But if they had taken the time to catch 23 in Columbus and go south for about 30 minutes... That boring would have become beautiful. Beautiful. The, the rolling hills and the, the scenic vistas of south central Ohio truly are uh, beautiful places, especially in the fall, about the third week of October when, when all the autumn colors, you know, take over every tree in sight. We don't, you know, in central Ohio, it's not, you know, pine trees everywhere. It's, it's deciduous trees that actually are beautiful in the fall. And I, I always miss that uh, part of the country that time of year. But a lot like, sorry for the, I'm just a little, feeling a little nostalgic in the holidays for my hometown. So forgive me for going on and on about it. Um, I won't say anything else other than to say this. South Central Ohio is a lot like, in fact, our county, Pickaway County, is a lot like, you know, Pasquotank County in the sense that um, as you drive through the countryside, uh, sprinkled all throughout are little towns and communities and townships. And some of them are, are bigger and, or smaller than the others. And some of them are, you know, notable and have some sort of significance to them. And others don't really have much of that at all. And there's uh, one such place in particular right down the road from where uh, my wife and I ministered um, as uh, youth leaders during college. And it's the town called Whistler. Whistler, Ohio. You can look it up. It does have a Wikipedia page, by the way. It's not very long. <laughs> There's not a whole lot to say about Whistler. In fact, uh, the, the population is printed on the sign, at least it was 20 years ago, on the sign it was 
uh, Whistler, population 111. And the funny thing about the sign is, my friends and I used to joke that the, that was you know that, that was Roman numerals, you know, population three, because just like in the middle of nowhere, this little community is just pops up, and if you blink driving through, you miss it. it is as insignificant as one gets. I, I think uh, it, you know Wikipedia will tell you that for about fifty years there was a a post office there until about I think nineteen. 19- yeah, 1933, there was once upon a time a country store there, but there's not even, I don't think there's even that anymore. It's, it, there's literally nothing to it. it. It is a nowhere place. Now, maybe you already know where I'm going with this, because we read just a second ago where the restorer is coming from. We know a restorer is coming. Micah even tells us where he's coming from. Is it Jerusalem? Is it some... Is it from some place of significance, some great palace or fortress or notable stronghold? No. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. On this side of history, you and I know all about Bethlehem. At least we are familiar with Bethlehem. We know the significance of Bethlehem. In fact, Bethlehem is known all around the world. But in the day of Micah, Bethlehem was nothing. I doubt Bethlehem would have even had a Wikipedia entry in those days. It was known really for one thing only. It was the town where King David came from, right? But who was King David? When he was discovered, he was what? He was, he was the least. He was the youngest. He was the insignificant. He wasn't counted among the, the ones that would be worthy of the mantle of king. He was small. He was insignificant. He was an afterthought. He was the, the very type of the one to come. And this is the pattern of God. Not just on some cosmic scale and not even on some national scale. This is the pattern of God in your life and in my life. To do things in a very, what seems like a very backwards or upside down manner. It's a way that you never expect. It's a way you never could have considered or you never would have written the script yourself if you were in control and you could decide how God would work in your life and the the timing and the manner and the outcome. You would have it all written out. You know exactly what you would want God to do and you know for sure that it's the best for your life. And God says, nope. God's response to the invasion of the world's great superpower is to send a seemingly nobody from nowhere. But he's not a nobody, is he? Yeah, Bethlehem is nowhere for sure. Population three. But he's a somebody. Though he comes from a small village among all the people of Judah, his origins are from where? The distant past. In fact, I believe that expression could probably more literally be rendered um, of old. His origins are of old. I think only two other places in the Old Testament is that exact expression used. You have it in uh, Deuteronomy 33 where it is written, the eternal of old God is your refuge. 
Habakkuk 1.12, O oh Lord my God, my Holy One, you who are of old. So whenever you see that expression, you can know that it is an adjective describing whom? God. God himself. Micah's not describing the coming of some ordinary person, no matter his place of birth. No, his true origins are of old. And so right here in this passage, we see that Micah, in some small way, we don't know to what degree he fully understood what he was sharing. Yes, we know that, that God uses you know, the, the, the personality and the experience and the distinct situation of the writers of the scriptures. He inspires them by his spirit so that what they write is indeed true. We know that all scripture is God-breathed, but it doesn't mean God himself transcribe the scriptures. He elevates the minds and the, the, the perspective and the hearts of the, the writers so that they have a divine perspective on things, but we don't know how high that perspective is. We don't know what exactly they truly know about everything that they're told to write down and, and record. We don't know exactly what Micah saw, but we know at some level, at some level, Micah could see the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. Micah could see that God himself, who, as verse 3 says, comes by the ordinary means of pregnancy and labor and delivery is coming. We know that the, the, the manner that he comes is ordinary. We know that the place he comes from is nowhere, and yet he's somebody from somewhere. And the world looks at Micah 5, 2, and says, move along. <laughs> Remember that from... Um, the old police squad show, you know, there's like an explosion in, going on in the background and there's flames and fireworks and all this like chaos and mayhem and you've got the police saying, move along, nothing to see here. You've got that going on. The world looks at 5-2 and says, move along, nothing to see here and yet you and I know from Luke chapter 2 that the angels break onto the scene and they can't contain themselves. There's something to see here. I want you to take hope this morning in the unexpected power, the unexpected wisdom of God revealed at Christmas. A God who came, a restorer who was ordinary yet extraordinary, who was promised to come and yet takes us by surprise who was born in Bethlehem but originated in heaven, who came from nothing but who is himself everything. He doesn't come from where you expect him to come, nor in the way you expect him to come, but he is always everything you need in your life. And you need nothing more than Jesus, and you need nothing less than Jesus. No matter what you're facing. The restore note takers will be sympathetic. He will be unexpected. But he will also be strong and majestic. Look again in verse 4. And he will stand to lead his flock how? With great courage, with great determination, with strategic brilliance on the battlefield. Well, yes, but he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength. 
in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of peace. Again, we find here in verse 4, we've we've already seen this from from, uh, our previous uh, journey here through Micah, the imagery of a shepherd who has come to gather his people with the Lord strengthened in the majesty of the name of God. Earlier, we addressed the concern just this morning of, you know, knowing at the, you know, in some intellectual way that God is all-powerful, but we are concerned if, whether or not he cares. And Micah reassures us that, yes, he cares. He's coming near. He's, he's coming to you. God himself is going to step onto the scene. And, he, and, and we know on this side of history that Jesus came to, to earth in the flesh, that he knows what we're going through. He understands. He sympathizes with your life. There's nothing that you're facing that he can't identify with on an existential level from experience. But now Micah is going to assure us that yes, he sees, yes, he knows, yes, he understands and is coming near, but the sympathetic one is not only tender enough to care for his flock, but powerful enough to protect it. So you have reassurance on both ends of the spectrum, if it's a spectrum, but you get my point. Yes, he's tender, yes, he cares, but yes, he's powerful. And you can find comfort in the fullness of both of the dimension, these dimensions of his character. Because if he's one without the other, he's not, he's not much good for your life now, is he? Yes, God cares. He understands. He's concerned. But he doesn't really have what, it, what I need in this time. Yes, God has what I need. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's, he's Lord over all. But he doesn't really care about me. You see, one without the other doesn't do you much good, does it? But Micah assures us that he's both at once. Tender, caring, compassionate, sympathetic, mighty, powerful, in control. Jesus steps into human history and declares emphatically, I am here and I am enough. Back in the summer, Pastor Aaron, um, it was his turn to lead our staff devotion time over in the chapel. We always start at uh, nine o'clock and have, we take turns, it's on a rotation. We take turns leading a little devotion time. Um, and then we, we pray together. And he did a devotion that came from Psalm 23. And what stood out to me, um, Pastor, and I'm sorry, I don't remember anything else from the devotion. Don't hold that against me. But I dare you to tell me what I just preached last Sunday. So we'll be even when you realize you can't remember. I do remember one thing that stood out to me from this devotional. And it was how... Uh, the phrase, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, how that was translated. It was translated a little bit differently, and it was like this. It said, your club and your staff, they comfort me. I don't know. There's just something really encouraging to my heart that day, picturing Jesus wielding a club for me. Does that comfort you at all? Now, maybe you're worried that he's coming after you with the club. I don't think that's the point of Psalm 23 at all. (laughs) I don't want Jesus hunting me down with the club. (laughs) But I find something just really comforting that he's a shepherd prepared to beat away anything that threatens my life. Yes, he's gentle, Jesus, meek, and mild, the Lamb of God, but he's also mighty warrior. 
Lord of hosts, the Lion of Judah. And I want to tell you, in whatever adversity you face in life, take comfort, yes, that Jesus is close. Jesus is sympathetic. Jesus understands. Jesus cares. But he's also a powerful defender. He's by your side. Jesus has got your back. And here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart. For he has overcome the world. In 2014, a never-before-seen unpublished letter was written by uh, C.S. Lewis. I'm sorry, in 2014, it was, it was found in a secondhand book. It was a letter from C.S. Lewis from back in uh, 1945, and it was composed to a, a Mrs. Ellis. Now, no one knows, uh, none of the historians know who, um, who the Mrs. Ellis was, but we, we all know who C.S. Lewis is, don't we? And apparently, he, re- he wrote this letter, and no one knows if the letter was even ever delivered. Because it was just found, stuffed in some book that someone had bought off or acquired, you know, secondhand or thirdhand or however many hands removed from the original owner. And what was interesting about the letter is that it contained some thoughts of Lewis. It wasn't long, but it contained some thoughts that Lewis had that would then later go on to take shape in his book, Surprised by Joy. If you've ever read that book or know anything about that book, it's his personal account of how he moved from being a, a staunch atheist to a, a believer in Christ. And so Surprised by Joy was his story, how he came to saving faith. And, and that was sort of a, a fuller expression of some of the sort of the kernel of ideas that were contained in his letter to Mrs. Ellis. And in his letter, uh, he says that everything is going well. But true to C.S. Lewis, he's very quick to qualify what he means by that. Yeah, I seldom think that deeply about anything to where I have to have some sort of deep philosophical insight on everything that I think, say, and do. I mean, half the times I can't even remember what I wanted to say to begin with. C.S. Lewis says everything's going well, but then he quickly qualifies that to point out that saying such a thing does not necessarily mean that one has joy. Saying that everything is going well in your life is not always equivalent to having joy. In fact, he says, when people say things are going well, generally they're referring to their sense of security in life, or what he even says, their illusion of it. They think they're secure. They think things are going well. But real joy, he says, seems to me almost as unlike security and prosperity as it is unlike agony. In other words, you and I tend to mistake pleasure and ease of life and comfort for joy. As if they, they're equivalent or ne- dependent on one another. Yes, I have pleasure, I have ease of life, I have comfort, therefore I have joy. Comfort and joy. We sing it. I have comfort, I have joy. But joy, Lewis would contend, is of a different nature altogether. He said one second of it. <laughs> I love this. It's very C.S. Lewis-y. One second of joy is worth 12 hours of pleasure. One second of joy is worth 12 hours of pleasure. It must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and pleasure. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. I think in his conversion to Christ, C.S. Lewis discovered that joy was not the result of an easy, painless life. 
And if you think when we talk about joy in Advent that that's what's being promised to you, and it's not. No, joy is not the pleasure and security and contentment that comes from the absence of misery. Joy is knowing the one who comes into your life amidst the misery. That's joy. It's not the removal of pain. It is the presence of God in the pain. One who is near. One who is powerful. And yet one who is good. He is true security amidst all insecurity. He is life even in the face of death. And this was a surprise to this former atheist. He was surprised by joy. (laughs) It went against all the conventional wisdom of the world. Real joy, regardless of circumstances, Lewis writes, jumps under one's ribs and tickles down one's back and makes one forget meals and keeps one delightedly sleepless at night. It shocks one awake when worldly comforts puts one to sleep. And he would choose the joy of knowing God amidst suffering all the pleasures and ease of comfort that this world would have to offer. And I wonder if maybe in the midst of your sufferings, in the midst of your miseries, in the midst of your hardships, I wonder if God could surprise you today with the unexpected joy of his presence. He is near, he is caring, he is strong. On this third Sunday of Advent, I want you to come by faith. Come by faith and expect the unexpected one. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for coming in a timer, a a timing, and in a manner and from a place that no one would have ever guessed. No human being would have ever written the script the way that it played out. We would have expected one to come from the mightiest of fortresses to the the fanfare of all the world to bring an end to everything that we see wrong in others. And yet you came from the lowliest of places in the most ordinary of ways to the fanfare of those not even of this world. But you came to defeat the greater enemy of sin and death. Lord, would you come and break our attachment at the level of the heart from anything but you? Even if it means we have to be the Cumberland Bulldogs for a little while. Lord, help us to trust that as we're being steamrolled by the Georgia Techs of life, that you will be our peace through it all. And help us to experience the unexpected joy that we find in the midst of life's circumstances. Not because of the absence of difficulty and suffering, but because of your presence through it all. Thank you for being a faithful, present, sympathetic, and almighty restorer. 
Come and restore me. Come and restore us today. We pray in your mighty name. Amen.